I think that the, the, what retailers have to think about is, I suppose, the, the question of experience and what experience looks like. Because if doing things that were more, you know, at the experiential end of the spectrum were important before COVID, they're even more important now because customers really need to have a compelling reason to visit your store because they've just had an education that tells them they can do other things. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing, and today we've invited Sean McKee e-commerce leader and former head of e-commerce and customer experience at SHU. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sean, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Janelle. I'm really glad to be here. You were the head of e-commerce <laughs> and customer experience at SHU for the past 10 plus years. Um, also, I noticed that in your career at SHU, you went from a store manager, presumably for a brick and mortar location, yep. to head of e-commerce. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of your career at Shoe? Yeah, I suppose I was fortunate to be in the business when the business was really starting to grow. Uh, you know, so I I joined when the business was pretty small as a as a store manager, as you as you've rightly said, and I guess uh, opportunity was available for me to get involved in in other things. So I spent time as a store manager. I got involved in a joint trading operation with a partner in in Dublin, where we were opening a business in the Republic of Ireland, um, got involved in that. And then, you know, there were regional opportunities and then divisional opportunities to manage regions thereafter, you know. So there, there was opportunity. And as the business got to know me and what I could do, uh, I was able to, you know, uh, take advantage of those opportunities. And then what really changed in 2010 was um, was an e-commerce role coming up. And I'd, I'd I'd been interested in e-commerce for some time. I'd been involved in developing training material with the with the e-commerce team and trying to bring retailers and e-commerce people together so they could understand each other a bit. So I, I, I suppose I'd had a, a kind of a very, very slow interview process over time. So it was just an opportunity to go off and do something else in a part of the business that was clearly a very exciting part of the business. So I, I jumped at it. But I suppose what you could say is there's a constant thread and the constant thread has been managing people, clearly defining business goals and doing that in a customer facing environment where we need to think about the customer's experience and, you know, how we're delivering on that. So certainly there's been that common denominator. What makes e-commerce very different, of course, though, is that e-commerce is very much about data and measurement um, and there's quite a lot of advantage there. You know, the need to innovate, the enjoyment of disruption rather than the resistance to disruption, which which you can get in other parts of the business. And also the colleagues you get to work with as well, because I got to work with some really eclectic, highly specialized people. Um, so quite different from retail. Can you tell us a little bit about the company? Shoe? Sure. Yeah. Um, so Shoe is one of the constituent parts of a Wall Street listed business called Genesco. Uh, so Genesco is a footwear oriented 
U.S. business based in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, the the bit of Genesco you'll know the best is Journeys and the chain of Journeys stores, but uh, Johnson & Murphy's in there and there's other uh, constituent parts of the business. But Shoe really is a multi-brand fashion footwear business uh, really oriented towards a target consumer who's 15 to 35, you know, so a, a youthful, fashion-aware consumer who's interested in sort of looking looking right being fashionable interacting with their peers in a particular way so not um, not achingly fashionable but mainstream fashionable and so it's a volume business full full price orientation but very much a volume oriented full price orientation you know it's interesting just kind of thinking about and you look at some of the data around e-commerce as well as retail sales but e-commerce in particular and the growth that we've seen since 2010 and even <laughs> Very much so in the last year, um, Absolutely. you know, due, due to COVID. What would you say, like, aside from the spend and like the bigger wallet share, I guess, of e-commerce in particular, yeah. what are two of the two or three of sort of the big shifts or trends that you've seen related to e-commerce in the last in your time, you know, in, in this in this space? Well, look, the biggest shift that really affected the way we worked day to day was the shift to mobile. You know, the consumers shift from you know, to put it in, in the most simplistic terms, a bigger screen, a big screen to a small screen and a small screen where the functionality was different. And some of the functionality that you had taken for granted just, you know, became defunct. And then, um, and then the customer was educated to interact with your offer in a slightly different way. So that shift to mobile was very, very meaningful because it had implications for the way we designed um, you know, the user interface obviously became very, very different. And we had to think about that and the, the nature of the interaction, the growth of the visual rather than the textual. It also had uh, major implications for the way we had to market to the consumer because obviously the advertising product was different. SEO considerations were different. And then you had players like Google who were taking very, very strong positions on what does mobile friendliness look like and how might we help you index or not based on your mobile friendliness. So there was quite a lot of learning to do on the hoof and constantly benchmarking, even if the benchmark is a bit of a moving target. And I suppose the other thing that mobile affected, and really in a big way, was what the customer's expectation was of service and the sort of interactions they wanted to have with businesses, you know, so a much stronger need for immediacy in the interaction, real-time interaction, as opposed to waiting two or three days for a reply to an email. No, I'd rather chat with you right now. Um, so, you know, things like that, services, certainly in the UK market, the sort of services that people wanted to consume, uh, much more into next day delivery and even same day delivery in the in the metropolitan locations. It's just an expectation of speed and immediacy that was being driven by their education on their phones. And it became obvious you know, once the iPhone became ubiquitous, but it became particularly obvious, you know, five, six years ago when players like Samsung really started bringing terrific products to market, big screens that were give you a really rich experience. And so it's become utterly ubiquitous and really changed the way retailers have to interact with the consumer. So that's one. Uh, and I'll give you one more. I suppose the other one then is the flip side. The flip side is 
the major change to footfall into physical locations and what that's meant for businesses where the legacy is in brick and mortar and you know and where the economic model for the business is is built around that so it's really understanding the performance implications when your business shifts in a particular way and the constraints that might apply as a result of that shift, because in the end, there's a lot of sunk costs in the physical parts of the business and you need to invest in the digital parts of the business. So there's a bit of tension. So I think there's been there's been a couple of major changes and um, there's there's two. Yeah, it's that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of changes. Everything from yeah. considering not just the human experience, if you will, like you, you talked about the expectations that people have around design and immediacy and even the technical implementations like Absolutely. The indexing that Google does isn't, it's not people sitting there evaluating the experience. It's technical and, and it's it's how they're evaluating how the site is built and Correct. how fast it loads and, and Absolutely. all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a moving target. It's a moving yes. target. So it's it changes a, you, all the time. constant state of iteration and that's quite hard. And then the other thing you mentioned, I think <clears> is fascinating is just sort of this tension between digital and um, physical. I remember... Yeah. I obviously won't name the name, but uh, consulting with some companies where there was actually true competition between those channels. And obviously, customers likely are not attuned to that unless you're in the space and you understand how these things work. But customers generally expect the same consistent experiences across they, touch points. They do. And increasingly, they want to have um, an experience that might need a number of those touch points, you know, and certainly in some markets, services like Click and Collect are very important. And so, you know, your ability to inform yourself before a store visit to think about store stock is what I want there today and to reserve it or to buy it. That's all become very important for the consumer. And you're quite right to say there is competition sometimes between channels. And that's about the KPIs and how the business articulates what's important to the business. And I'm sure no businesses are perfect and, and she was no more perfect than anyone else. Yeah, it's a it's it's fascinating. <clears throat> you know, but we have seen and and I'm not sure if you've seen it too just generally or in your work at shoe, but uh, a real drive towards uh, combining the channels, as you mentioned. So with COVID yeah. in particular, the buy online, pick up curbside or click and collect. Um, and yeah. even pre-COVID, that was that was something that was being adopted, just not as crazy adopted as it was during COVID. The other that I remember stumbling upon, gosh, it was probably 10 years ago now. But when you would go look up an item at a store, not only would it tell you the availability and if it was in stock, but it told you exactly where it was, like what bay it was on or what aisle it's in. I'm like, that's just, that's incredible to be able to support. That's not easy to, to do for companies, but it's so seamless and delightful from a customer perspective. It, it absolutely is. I think I think there's a balancing act that's quite difficult there because you mm. can make it so convenient for the customer that there's just no reason to visit the store because it, you know if, if the store if the store performs the functions of a warehouse then you might as well just order it to your house whereas you've got to I suppose you've got to overlay the warehouse elements with the theater and the experiential elements so that stores are still sufficiently essential for you to want to visit, that there is something about the store that the web just can't do. Uh, and there are certainly things that the that web just can't do, um, but not many. Yeah, you're right. Although shoe wear <laughs> and apparel are two that I think are harder for people to convert on if they can't see it, feel it, try it on. That's totally right. It's totally right. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think interaction with a real person is a big deal. And even where we were offering web chat 
and we had we had a combination we had we had web chat we had text chat and we'd also video chat but the closer we could get to the interaction with a real person the more our conversion rates on the site looked like our store conversion rates you know so a store conversion rate was typically four times the web conversion rate but those live chat conversion rates were sometimes beat in the store and it's about getting real interaction with real people. I think I think that's that that's an enormous deal. And then of course one of the one of the real areas of friction in footwear is sizing, as you quite rightly say. And it's taken uh, it's taken solution providers a long time to get to online sizing recommendations that are useful. Yeah. They're there they're there now, but it's very very reliant on you buying things that are sort of commoditized in the market and the, the market understands. You know, so if you're aware of New Balance five seven fours. There is someone who can help you understand the size of that. But if it's a fashionable party shoe that was sourced in Spain 12 weeks ago, nobody can help. So it's, you know, so it, it, it requires a degree of commodity, but it's, um, but, but it's still not as good as going in a store and interacting with a brilliant member of staff. That makes a lot of sense. Connecting with a human, whether that's in store or over chat or even over traditionally over the phone. Yeah. Um, certainly. Yeah, making that connection. Speaking of actually connecting with customers, uh, during your time leading uh, the team over at Shoe, how did you stay close to your customers uh, and your potential customers even uh, to ensure that you were making decisions that balance the needs of your business, but also the needs of your customers? Um, well, we did a number of things, and some of it was really quite bespoke just to, to meet our needs as a business. But well, we combined things that were implicit in what the customers did and with things that they were explicitly telling us. So in terms of the implicit stuff, well, obviously the very granular behavioral measurement that you can do on websites is important. So you can identify where friction is detectable, where the customer is doing things that are, you know, where the customer's finding it difficult to move to the next stage of their journey because of something that's that's not working for them. So all of that is highly measurable. And the beauty of working in a volume business is that you have very large numbers of people confirming the hypothesis. You can get a very, very good steer of what the customer is telling you, even if they're not articulating what they're telling you. But you can also ask for feedback and actively encourage interaction. And we did that. So I've mentioned chat already. We we actively did that. So, you know, growing participation of opportunities to speak to the customer in a, in a salesman-like conversation was important. But we also went out and asked them for feedback as well. You know, asked them for, you know, we, you know, we, we got involved with, you know, we did net promoter score. We had a net easy score as well. So we could really think about friction because that really helped the, the UX bits of the e-commerce team um and obviously we collated and uh, you know and understood the trends and all of that feedback we also innovated the experience to reflect not just what the customer was kind of showing us through volume what they what they wanted but where the market was headed as well because we we kept a very watchful eye on you know where the market was headed on you know whether it was fit or payment or or you know just different ways of making the customers um experience that a little bit easier and we also we did a very simple thing we made sure the customer was was at the table, so to speak, every time we had a project meeting. So a member of the customer experience team attended every meeting for every innovation on the website so that there was someone there defending the customer's position who understood also just what 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 is it customers are going to ask about this and the way the systems work with each other, you know, what's what's not going to 
how's this going to be a problem? Uh, and very often, very often the glass was half empty rather than half full, but they were certainly very, very good at policing what the wider team was doing. Um, so I think that was immensely helpful. So we just had people who were educated about the customer in the conversation because it's quite easy just to get diverted into other places. And in terms of balancing it with the, the wider business, Janelle, we did a couple of things very briefly. We always provided a hypothesis that said, that showed how this would affect growth or how it would mitigate a cost. And that cost might be labor or whatever, but, you know, so either it'll drive growth or we can do something beneficial in terms of cost. We then test the hypothesis. We'd obviously roll out in a very contained way and think about how we were demonstrating the hypothesis. And then we never implemented anything that we couldn't reverse, you know, so everything was reversible and everything needed to uh, sort of prove itself out, as it were, through the data. Um, So we made sure we created conditions that were measurable and reversible and nothing was permanent. And there was always an economic element to what we were doing because we were competing with other bits of the business who had other investment priorities. So we needed to make sure when we were doing things on behalf of the business that we could, you know, rationally defend what we were doing. Yeah. I I love the idea of having somebody representing the customer there to help guide the team to make decisions. You know, we have, um, I've heard examples of teams that will you know, back in pre-COVID times when people were meeting in person, teams that would actually have a table, a chair at the table to represent their customer, right? And so we're like imagining them sitting there representing their point of view, but actually having somebody there with the point of view. Um, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, we did. In our case, he was called Nathan. Uh, no, no coincidence with uh, uh, anyone else called Nathan, but he was Nathan turned up at every meeting and Nathan had an in-depth awareness of what the customer, uh, how the customer would approach what we were doing. And, right. you know, and it was really helpful. You kind of alluded to this in, in uh, the last kind of explanation of balancing business needs with the customer needs. Yeah. I love how you tie your work to something like growth or cost reduction, Mm. because that's kind of what I kind of want to ask you about next, which is e-commerce in particular um, has some pretty clear metrics tied to it, right? So like conversion rates, cart, total cart, you know, uh, size, how many items are in it, um, getting through the checkout flow. There's no shortage of metrics that are captured. That's right. Uh, And CX is a little fluffier. Uh, And so, how do you? How did your team, or how do you think about measuring C, uh, CX at Shoe, and and what defines success there? So we did we did a number of things. I suppose the first thing to say is that the the business had a belief in um, in our point of difference or an, an opportunity for point of difference lay in giving the customer a great experience. So there was certainly a starting belief that good service was good for everybody. and um, But there were also parts of the business who believed that the CX team were just an enormous cost and that cost should be you know, mitigated and contained and controlled. So we spent a lot of time demonstrating the contribution that they, they made. So in a sales, in a volume-oriented sales business, we were able to demonstrate what they were contributing. So whether it was telephone sales, because there are some customers who still want to do that, whether it was sales through the chat that I mentioned. I mean, it was a substantial seven-figure sum in sales through chat. So we were able to, in a very simple way, say, well, look. But more importantly, in terms of the the customer's actual experience, the, the what the customer was experiencing, we, we looked at all the query types by volume 
we made sure we understood, you know, the level of queries we were getting as a, as a, you know, as a overall participation in the business. You know, just what, what was coming through, what was driving those queries. We looked at how services were being consumed, so the different things that we offered the consumer, whether it was, you know, the things that we've mentioned like click and collect or next day delivery. What were they actually, you know, using, and what was the behaviour that we could attribute to usage of those services? Different basket sizes, different returns rates, um, different NPS scores, for example. Um, we looked at returns, and, and I suppose those are those are for the most part lag measures. But we also use some lead measures around the website as well. You know, the obvious ones: abandonment rates, bounce behaviour, all of those things, just to, to tell us how the customer was doing. Um, and obviously then as well, you compare it all with the benchmark. And in retail businesses, the benchmark is usually last year or last quarter. And it's, you know, it's a pretty simplistic thing. But knowing what good looked like was quite important. And that there was a, I suppose we all had a presumption that we would improve good. We would do better than we'd done before. So we we were very clear about setting targets. But really, it was about making sure that the overall number of queries uh, you know, as a percentage of sales didn't get any worse or if, you know, if something was going wrong, we were on it pretty quick. Uh, and I had the advantage of having an office that was right alongside the CX team as well. So I, I heard it in real time. It, it was good, but the, the business was interested in what are they doing from sale, from a sales perspective? What's going wrong? How are you fixing it? And how, how big a set of problems do we have? So pretty simplistic stuff from the wider business perspective. I imagine you could probably layer in some parts of uh, NPS or uh, into the different, because it's interesting, right? Looking at it from a business perspective, you also have to come at it from like a customer perspective as well and understanding that journey and where they drop off. And I imagine you probably were able to layer NPS in there somewhere. We, we were, um, it was probably most useful at, at individual locale level. You know, we could tell you that our German customers weren't as happy as our English customers, for example. But NPS was useful from a whole business perspective because it was it was one of those universal languages that is quite useful. But it's not particularly useful in terms of driving what real customers get on the ground. I think, and we found we found the measurement we you know the, the net easy scoring that we did was more useful to us because we were in the business of removing friction from the experience, and it helped if we were talking to the customer about just achieving what they were hoping to achieve today and, and really getting the, a flavor of their sentiment on that. We, we found that much easier than the net promoter score, to be honest with you. But, all, but also sometimes the free text that we were getting, the verbatims that we were getting were particularly useful as well. So, you know, below the score, sometimes there's a very pithy sentence or a couple of sentences that can tell you something. And it took us a little bit of time to find the right partner to help us uh, marshal all that free commentary and and really help us understand the impact of it but we did um we did work with a partner then who really helped us organize that and show us the trends in the free text and that was quite helpful as well i'm sure we could spend an entire hour on the topic of nps but i'm with you on that in terms of scoring at a very holistic level and it's not super actionable most of the time unless you do actually look at the free text associated with it Absolutely. That being said, you mentioned the net easy score. What what is the net easy score? So the so the methodology is exactly the same as NPS. What is different is the question. So the question is how easy was it for you to do what you wanted to do today? 
and you know so everything else is broadly the same but it was a it was a measure it was a measure of friction or lack of ease and that certainly from a you know from a design perspective from a you know it, it just was so much easier to work with whereas i think nps was more useful in conversations with your peer in a different business you know and you sort of you know compare scores with each other but it was difficult to it was difficult to turn that into change for the customer i think yeah it makes a lot of sense it's almost like the nps is much more geared towards uh the, the it's almost like an ego boost for the, or not for the company right like how how likely are you to recommend versus let me hear from the customer perspective how easy or difficult was it to do the thing you wanted to do yeah, I think. Look, I think they're. I think they're useful, but in the end, businesses are pretty simplistic places to be. And look, the 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 key, the, the, the key performance indicators are top line and bottom line, and 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 everything else in between. And in the end, when when growth was in the right place, people were generally happy. And if we could make our customers happy, we were, that was a particularly good day. So twenty twenty. And even 2021 at this point, yep. um, banner Possib- year. <laughs> possibly 2022 as well. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, yep. Banner year for retail, uh, which grew close to 28% worldwide. Yeah. Uh, and so as we know, this is a huge growth um, and it was fueled primarily by the pandemic. Um, were you surprised at all by this shift in buying behavior? And um, did you think um, retailers were ready for it? I think I was um, I was slightly surprised by the nature of the digital volumes that mm. were that you know the the, the size of the switch. Uh, certainly in the mar- the markets we were working with in shoe, the the nature of the switch wasn't too surprising. You know, all of the trends that we've been seeing for a period of time were accelerated you know just you know if footfall if footfall was difficult it became very difficult in fact it became zero in some cases so um so it really it was trends we knew about um but volumes we were pleasantly surprised by and that threw up a number of challenges particularly in the context of covid so if you've got a distribution center where social distancing masks screens are now considerations you know hygiene routines the reality is you can't get as many people picking and you know picking and packing per square foot as you would normally so there was a, an, an immediate impact on productivity in in those dense locations that were important to the business there's obviously the question of people's ability to work from home as a, versus the office and the the knock-on impacts there so I think from a purely business perspective, most of it was not a surprise. The volumes were the surprise. From a day-to-day operational perspective, there were lots of surprises and much learning to do on the on the spot. And then I think in in retail more generally, it drove some it drove some some fairly panicky behavior among retailers as well. You know, so in the UK where all stores were closed that weren't deemed essential retail. Well, businesses had to take action to make sure they could move their inventory, that they could generate sales. You know, so there's a lot of discounting in the market, huge amount of blanket discounting and promotions and those sorts of things. So I think it, I think it certainly had a knock-on effect. Uh, and it, it, it rode a coach and horses through anything that people understood as a season or a fashion season, you know, and, every, and suddenly there was only demand for casual Casual wear, tracksuits, you know, jogging pants, um, you know, fitness gear. 
So, you know, so if you're in, if, if, if your business was in formal wear or, you know, parties or anything like that, that season was gone. That season just wasn't there. So I think it's been very disruptive from that perspective. And there was a, there was a big UK retailer reporting in the last couple of weeks. They've actually started measuring their product performance in terms of above the waist and below the waist because the the zoom factor in all of this is that they were shifting more volume above the waist than they were below the waist it's fascinating it's funny uh, i remember in the us the walmart re- released some uh numbers early on in the pandemic and were saying that you know the per- people purchasing or the number of shirts being purchased is widely outpacing the number of bottoms and it was like uh, yeah absolutely yeah. And now I don't know if you've seen, I just saw an article on CNBC last Sunday and, it's, and they're seeing an uptick in purchasing of shaving kits, skirts below the waist and champagne. Yeah. I think also there's, there's maybe something else worth mentioning as well, Janelle, in that it, a couple of things that have been bubbling under really had their moment as a result of all of this as well. You know, so things like scheduling or appointment systems for customers suddenly became so much more important, you know, that you know people did not want to stand in a queue for 40 minutes outside a store. So appointment systems, live chat with store associates, live chat in stores really has started to come into its own for the first time and, and probably won't go away. And of course, you mentioned it earlier as well, the curbside pickup in the US, you know, services that were part of this redefinition of local or redefinition of where local is today. Um, it's on this. It's on. It's outside the store. It's not in the store. Um, so all of those things that had been bubbling under a bit sort of had a, have had a moment in the sun, and that's quite good as well. Um, in that, that that some of them will outlive COVID. I think. Yeah. Speaking of that, what's going to outlive <clears throat> COVID from a retail perspective? Are these buying shifts here to stay? Like, what's your take? I think some of them are. Um, so you, there's certainly going to be a cohort of customers who've been educated and you can't really put this genie back in the bottle. They've, they've really thought about what's essential, what's not essential, what can I, you know, what should I be buying where and for what reason. People have been buying bulk, bulk buying things that they never bulk bought before. And, you know, there's been all sorts of funny behaviors. So I think some of that will not be undone. Of course, Amazon has had a great COVID. Uh, so, that, you know, that, that process of education of the Amazon ecosystem continues. I think that the, the, what retailers have to think about is, I suppose, the, the question of experience and what experience looks like. Because if doing things that were more, you know, at the experiential end of the spectrum were important before COVID, they're even more important now because customers really need to have a compelling reason to visit your store. because. They've just had an education that tells them they can do other things. So, so the experiential stuff is important. I think there's a there's some challenges around mix of retail as well because certainly in this UK market, a number of retailers have fallen away as a result of COVID. There are fewer retailers in the market, and there's particular pressure on department stores and the department store format, which really has suffered. And the 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 challenge that that presents is very often they're the anchor store in shopping developments. You know, so in your local mall. There's a bit, you know, so there'll be a big anchor store with a big footprint that is the main draw. And then the other retailers open up around that main draw. Well, in this market, they're disappearing. Some of them are literally, you know, just disappearing. That's going to have an effect on the quality of retail and, you know, how important, whether it's the shopping mall or the retail park or the, or what is, you know, the high street in the UK is because, 
you've got to have reasons to visit. So I think that mix of retail is a big deal. And also how we've spent our time in lockdown, you know, all the things that people haven't been able to do. It isn't just shopping, it's dining, it's going to the pub, it's all of those things. So the competition for your spend is, very, you know, the, 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 the desire to meet other people, to associate with other people is going to be how we want to spend our time. And so I think it's not automatically the case that you'll want to do that in H&M or, 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 or a retailer. You might want to do it in a restaurant. You might want to do it in a bar. I think, I think that's going to be a consideration. And last you but know, not least, okay. I, I think, and it's just the last one, I think the way we work has changed. I think, I, I think a hybrid model is probably where we're all headed and just descending into city centers and downtowns the way we used to into, you know, large offices is a thing. It may be a thing of the past or, you know, at least partially a thing of the past and that impacts retail as well. For sure. I haven't even, I had not even thought about this idea of uh, when people are comfortable, the masses are comfortable with getting out that you're also retailers are also competing with all the other experiences that people can choose to have. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, some retail has done extremely well during COVID. If you're yeah. a bicycle, if you're a bicycle retailer, you have had the best year your business has ever had. There's, you know, um, if you're a supplier of um, gardening equipment or help people tend the grass on their lawn or plant hedges, you've had a good year. You know, so it's all these things are relative. But I think there's going to be a lot of competition for what spend is available and ultimately time. And right, where people choose uh, yeah. to spend their time when when they have you know free time. Absolutely. Okay, we're gonna flip out. We're gonna switch gears a little bit here. I'm gonna move over to our lightning round of questions. This is meant to be fairly quick, but you know we can always spend more time if we need to. I'd love to hear a book recommendation from you and and something you might recommend to our listeners. Well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna recommend a book that's related to customer experience or e-commerce. That's, I'm gonna I'm fine. gonna uh, life is too short. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to recommend a book that is I've actually got it here so I could show it to you. So it's called 1971 Never a Dull Moment and it traces 1971 through the rock albums of 1971. It's by David Hepworth and so if you're interested in the Rolling Stones, Carl King, absolutely pivotal albums in the sort of in the lexicon of rock music, this is a good book. Uh, Led Zeppelin. It's a pretty decent book, and he traces oh. the year through through key music from that year. So I've I found that particularly good recently, and I've spared you all the other reading. You know, there's been a lot of Brexit going on here, and political identity, and you know, all all sorts of identity related stuff that I could talk to you about, but I think I've been kinder. I love that. I love that sounds like a great, a great book and only covers one year, huh? Seems like so it's very good. And he's I think he's written a follow-up about just the the format that is the album and the the LP, uh, the vinyl album in particular. Yeah. So yeah, maybe it's maybe it's about my age or something, but I, I think it's very, very interesting. Yeah, that's nice. And we all need books that are outside of what we think about and do every day for our jobs. We do. Related, actually, back to experience, um, I'm sure just given your role uh, as, you know, running customer experience and just being hyper aware of the consumer experience, I tend to evaluate a lot of my own experiences and which ones are good or bad or delightful. Anything come to mind, um, like a recent great experience that you had? Yeah, there is. There is one. There is one. I bought a car during lockdown. 
and I couldn't visit the car. I couldn't test drive the car. And so I bought it through a combination of email, a video, uh, a video shop, uh, and then a phone call to follow up the video shop. So I was I was dealing with a the garage. They produced this fantastic video description. They walked the car, did all the close-ups I needed. Fantastic salesmanship as this commentary um, sort of on, on the video. Then sent all of this in real time. So I tell them I'm interested in their car. Half an hour later, I've got this video description of the car. And then I consume the video. And then half an hour after that, they're phoning me to discuss the video. I spent quite a lot of money basically over the phone having not tested the product. Um, but the quality of the interaction was so good um, that it uh, I had the confidence to do it. So, you know, I've, I've always been a sucker for web chat and, 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 and you know, the, these things really do work. But this was new for me in that it wasn't quite live, but it was close to live and it was really good. And they, yeah. well, they, got, they got the sale. And, and the car was okay. So, um, so that was, that was probably the standout one. Yeah. That's really interesting as well, because that, that interaction and that experience, they had to create out of necessity. Like that's Absolutely. the way that they're going to sell cars it, now. That it, it, it was exactly that they, they, it was necessity that drove the change and, uh, and they did such a good job of it. I mean, it, you, it, it, you, it was a really good experience. And I know humans are uh, per, uh, terrible at predicting our own future behavior, but you probably be curious to see your perspective or hear your perspective on, is that something you'd do again? I would do it again. I mean, in the end, it was personalized. It was completely personalized. It was a video for me. It wasn't a generic video. They made it as a result of my query, picked yeah. up on what I'd been saying in the query and reflected it back in the video. And I, th I, I thought it was excellent. Um, so I would I would certainly do it again. I'd much rather test. I'd much rather test drive the car though. Yeah, understood. Understood. Yeah. Let's talk about the future. So we've seen a lot of change in the last year or so, and of course, change over the last decade plus uh, yeah. around retail, e-commerce, even experience in general. I'm curious what what are you looking forward to? Like, what excites you about the future of customer-driven experiences? I still there's so much that's still not very good for the customer, um, and there's a there's a couple of particular areas for for me certainly uh, certainly in the in my last job they um, motivated me enormously. The first is the role of augmented reality and being able to um, economically produce augmented reality material that that brings product to life for the consumer in a way that is better than static images. And while you can have videos and beautifully rich imagery, being somewhere physical where you can interact with the product is still a very, very different experience. So there's still an opportunity for a middle ground there where AR can, can play a part. And I, I spent a lot of time trying to find a solution uh, that was suitable for footwear. But the, the challenge was time to produce the material and the cost of the production. And so, you know, if, if, if you're running a business with many thousands of SKUs, you've got to have a very economic and fast way of producing the material because you want people to interact with it. So I think AR has still got something to give. Um, and I suppose the other one is for me is just the, the final mile for customers is still pretty poor. You know, it's, you are still... Uh, you know, completely um, a victim of the quality of the, the business carrying the parcel, um, the driver on the day, 
um, what the driver chooses to do in the seconds before it, you know, the parcel is left at your premises, wherever that is. You know, and some of the stories are really funny, but they're probably not particularly funny if you're the customer who's at the receiving end of the experience. But, you know, but I still think final mile is pretty poor. And eBay tried something probably the best part of seven or eight years ago. They acquired a business in the UK called Shuttle, and they were trying to do same-day delivery. In fact, I think they also piloted something in San Francisco where they were trying to do delivery to people's mobile phone. Um, You know, given that your phone knows where you are, and that that is real-time and trackable information, uh, eBay had an aspiration to deliver to the phone. So it's the ultimate convenient service. And it, and it never really got off the ground. So there's, there's, still, there's still plenty of room for that to be better. And I suppose what's happened in the interim is you've got people in the market delivering food in minutes. You know, there's a lot of on-demand servicing going on in the market. So I think... Final Mile still has some way to go, certainly for people buying fashion products and, and products that still offer services that are a bit hit and miss, if you're kind. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great point. We've It's almost like, you know, as we get so used to and adapt to these really fast deliveries, right? Two-day delivery is like, you know, Amazon Prime. And, and then yeah. that sometimes is overnight or one day. It's like, you know, it's yeah. just kind of creeping up until yeah. it's sort of like, I just need this thing now. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, and I, I'm consuming things in a really in, very differently now as well. You know, so you know, now if I'm buying a book, I've got to make a decision between Kindle or Audible or a book. Our ways of consuming have fundamentally shifted, um, and it's good. It's fantastic to have choice, but it's complicated to have choice, and and it creates an operational requirement for the provider of that choice to be really very good. And of course, Amazon are, but not everybody is. Yeah, fantastic point. All right. Well, thanks so much, Sean, for for joining us. This has been really a great conversation. And I appreciate all your perspective and expertise or specifically around the topic of retail, but you have got some great, great uh, points and topics for us to kind of ponder. So thank you so much. Well, Janelle, thank you very much for asking me. It's been a pleasure. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast, and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play, so you can never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts.